Um, spring 2012, nearly two years ago now, was a very important time for me. A year earlier, we had launched, if you remember, um, what we what we called a bold gospel plan, the vision that we're still pursuing in Magdalen Road, um, to become a hub um, with a building of our own, um, and uh, which would be useful for Sunday worship, which would be a great relief for those who set up every every week, and um, to be a church that, from that hub, repeatedly plants churches in Oxford and beyond. That's the essence of the vision we've been pursuing for more or less three years now. And spring 2012 was a period that we set aside as a church for prayer and fasting, asking the Lord to confirm, clarify, refine that vision. And for me, that was a period um, which was very significant. There were two nagging thoughts in my mind. One was that our envisaged network of of free churches, that, um, that, that vision that we had of a, of a network stretching across Oxford and beyond of um, uh, uh, strong gospel-free churches um, would have a gaping hole in the centre of the city without determined action. It's not difficult to imagine us planting in various parts around the, the edge of the city, as we're already doing with Cowley Church Community, for instance, linking up with other um, churches like Woodstock Road as well and developing that network, which we're also doing. That leadership training session is, a, is, is part of that, that growing sense of, of, of laboring together um, in Oxford, but, but that network would form a donut with a big hole in the centre. And because so much of the life of Oxford um, is in the centre, to be honest, it would always be an impoverished network. That was, that was one nagging thought. The other nagging thought was less sort of uh, vision and strategic, was much more personal. I felt drawn to that centre. There were logical reasoned elements to that, but also a simple sense of the of the call of God. And during that that season of prayer and fasting, I was wanting to hear from the Lord, and uh, I was wanting to hear how the Lord was speaking to the church as a whole. Um, and I was also reading, incidentally, the latter chapters of the book of Acts. And there I saw Paul on his way to Jerusalem. There were strategic elements in that mission. He was determined in his uh, day, to hold Jewish and Gentile elements of the baby church together and keeping the Jerusalem church, the Jewish Jerusalem church, on side and, uh, with his mission to the Gentiles was vital, he felt, to keep God's church unified. But he actually doesn't speak about that much. For him, the compulsion of the Spirit was what really mattered. Verse 22... Now, he says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And as he travelled to Jerusalem, Paul was told um, more than once that he was mad. He was warned of the dangers. People even prophesied, uh, as it turned out in part accurately, that it would all end in tears. But Paul still felt compelled by God. And as uh, I was reading that and praying and, and hearing what, how the Lord was speaking to uh, the rest of the church, I felt an increasing sense that I must go to the centre. 
And as um, um, I listened to how the Lord was speaking to others and spoke to the elders over the summer, it became clear that 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 it wasn't fair to ask the whole church to get behind that. That wasn't the way that the the, uh, Magdalen Road Church was being called. I had to discern whether whether my sense of vision was a pipe dream to be dropped, or whether it was actually a focused calling for Judy and me, which wasn't necessarily shared by everyone. And um, you won't be surprised, there were plenty of people who encouraged us, but there were also some who called us mad. So we come to today. This, for me, is a moment of of great happiness and thankfulness to um, uh, to God. Um, the Apostle Paul um, calls uh, a church, the Philippian church in this case, my joy and my crown at one point, and you are definitely that to me. Over the last 17 years, we've been through um, tough times, but overwhelmingly, Magdalen Road has been our family, our friends, the centre of our life. This is the community that raised our children with us, and I think they've turned out okay. I'm pretty pleased with them. And we've worked shoulder to shoulder with one another, sometimes so hard that it has affected our health. We've wept together, we've laughed together. There have been family rows and uh, reconciliation, um, but we have always worshipped Christ together. And through that 17 or so years, God has restored and renewed this family of God. So that today, Magdalen Road, um, it, it stands strong and ready to serve the Lord in East Oxford and for the next generation and is under good leadership. I, I, frankly, one of the reflections of the last uh, year has been that if, 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 if what has happened over the last 17 years was all that God gave me to do with my life, I could die happy. And that fills me with joy. But one can't help but be sad, too. Um, For Judy and I, in the same year that our children have uh, finally left home, um, we, in turn, are leaving that other dimension of our family. We're not going far, and the children are not going that far, coming back all too often. But um, family bonds are starting to be loosened. And that's sad, even if it is healthy, a healthy element of growth. I asked for two weeks to say goodbye. Frankly, I can't remember why originally, but as I prayed over it, I, 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 I settled on looking at two great farewells from the Apostle Paul. This week, his farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 which uh, sets out for him some of his fundamental convictions about ministry. And then next week, his farewell, um, which at least he anticipates may be his final farewell, it seems, to to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he sets out even more fundamental convictions, in a sense, about the whole of life as a Christian. So, um, uh, two sermons about based on the Apostle Paul's fundamental convictions then. And this one is 
um, his convictions about ministry. And I, frankly, cannot read Acts 20 without being acutely aware that I fall far short of the apostles' example. And um, you who know me at least know that's true. But this is something to aspire to for me and for all of us, especially actually for any here who are leaders or who aspire to leadership. Here's some principles. We could we could pull out lots. Let me just pull out um, three effectively. One that we've already started to think about, that Paul puts really center stage in what he says. Always follow the guidance of God. Always follow the guidance of God. Verse 22 again, do you see that? Um, Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He literally felt bound, constrained, hemmed in by the Spirit of God. It didn't mean he knew everything about the future, far from it, not knowing what will happen to me there. It didn't mean that he had some sort of naive confidence that everything was automatically going to go well. Um, uh, Rather, the prospect of difficulty was no reason for ignoring the prompting of the Spirit. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. That didn't stop him. Everything else, he says, is incidental compared to following God's calling on my life. Verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That actually didn't mean that all planning and strategy was was ignored. Paul was a great strategist. His evangelistic strategy, for instance, was always to plant churches in Roman administrative centres because he knew that from there the gospel would flow out naturally to the whole region. For an example of that, for instance, is, is the church in Ephesus, which he planted. And then the gospel naturally flowed to the more peripheral town of Colossians, to where he wrote the letter, uh, to Colossi, sorry, to where he wrote that letter, Colossians. So that, that, that happened through the witness of another man, not himself, a man called Epaphras. That's how it goes. That's how Paul expected to go. To go. And so he often passed by um, opportunities in order to go to Roman administrative centers and set up strategic gospel ministries. He was a strategist. He was someone as well who who listened to wise advice. That was very important. There's a there's a particularly favourite example of that for me in Acts chapter 16. You may remember in Acts 16, um, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, "Come over here to help us." The interesting thing is that Luke carefully records that we concluded. God was calling us over there. So here's an apostle, a man of authority beyond uh, anyone uh, in in the world today, who has had a dream that is absolutely explicit and clear, come over here, and yet even he submits that 
to his colleagues so that they collectively conclude what God is calling them to do. I'm sure he had an opinion, and it seems that the opinion of what God was calling them to do prevailed. But nevertheless, we concluded, okay? So Paul was a strategist, and Paul listened to advice, but those were all subordinate to that great sense which was central in his life. He must follow the call of God. That is paramount for him. And remember, it doesn't mean it'll work out perfectly. Paul was fa- uh, warned that he would face imprisonment in Jerusalem, and, and that's what happened. Except that that was God's plan too. So it was okay. I remember very clearly in the summer of 1995 getting a, uh, a phone call from um, Brian Hennegolf. I'm sure you remember that phone call, Brian, do you? Um, saying that the deacons would like to invite me to come and talk to them about becoming their pastor. And uh, frankly, as I put the phone down, I sensed that this was the call of God. It doesn't always happen like that. There have been lots of times in, in our lives, and I know in other people's lives, when it's been a much more confusing mishmash and uh, cumula- accumulation of circumstances. But however God does it, when we sense that he's calling us to something, we must follow. And that, that decision cost us a lot. Um, I want to pay tribute to Judy uh, on that, because I think she bore the biggest cost, um, We were very comfortably settled as a young family um, with a secure income, a circle of friends that amounted to about a hundred or so, and we had to move to where there were no secure finances. They were very dodgy, almost no friends, three preschool children and a husband who was worked off his feet without any actual other staff support at that time. It's a big cost. But God has forged in Judea a depth and a resilience that he can't do any other way in our lives. And some things, frankly, in the last 17 years have not worked out as wonderfully as we might have hoped. If you had told me 17 years ago that we would still be discussing what we do about buildings, I... I would have probably lost all my hair in one go, in one uh, at one moment. That's that's how it goes. But but coming to Oxford was the right thing to do, and you are the living evidence of that. And uh, now, as we move to the to the centre and start Trinity Church, I have very similar feelings about that. Uh, frankly, I have no illusions about it. There will be challenges. Who knows, it may go uh, belly up. But I do know, as honestly as I can search my heart, it's the Lord's call. And we must follow where the Lord leads us. And I want to say that to you, everyone, as individuals. To to be honest, I think in the Western world, which is relatively secure 
um, financially, where um, uh, there's a sense that we are in control of things, I, I think that it is one of the abiding malaises of the evangelical church that we are very, very cautious about following God where he leads us again and again and again. You go to you know, Africa or, uh, uh, or, or other situations and you, you will find that sort of happy, willing obedience to do exactly that because we live under an illusion. An illusion that somehow we are kept secure only if we are safe financially and safe in every other way. The Bible insists that is not true. You are safe as you follow the Lord and you follow what he calls you to do. And that may be costly, or it may not, but that is the only safe to be, place to be as a believer. Compelled by the Spirit, the Apostle says. Always follow the guidance, the call of God, says Paul. That's my prayer for um, everyone here. Always watch your heart says the Apostle as well. Just one verse that I want to, or in fact two words that I want to point out to you in verse 19. I serve the Lord, says the Apostle, with great humility and with tears. Those two words, humility and tears, are an interesting choice for the Apostle and yet I think absolutely vital. Humility first. Claiming humility is a really, really dangerous thing because in general, people who think they've discovered uh, become humble almost by def- definition have not. I'm slightly shocked that the apostle claims it here, but Jesus, he, Jesus did too, but I'm not going to join that uh, company. I know my heart too well, but I do know that pride is deeply corrosive in leaders. Looking through at the New Testament, you just see where it is used. For instance, in Luke um, 14, Jesus um, speaks about it in the context of people looking for status. They're all jostling with each other for the most honoured place at the table. And, And Jesus warns them, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Searching for status in this world is a, is a dangerous thing and a, a sign of pride. In Matthew 23, Jesus again describes the, uh, the, the, the proud. And this time he points out that everything they do is done for people to see. Watch out for that, for the showman, the show person who is very different when they know they're on show from where they are in private. Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, warning us that pride is very, very closely allied to self-righteousness, that says, I thank God that I'm not like other people, to haughtiness, which looks down on others. And he says, actually, that kind of pride, the pride that he describes in the Pharisee, cuts us off from God. 
the proud Pharisee did not go home justified, says Jesus. And the New Testament is very, very uh, clear and strong on this. All believers are called to be humble and leaders in particular. Humble leaders are not doormats. No one could accuse Jesus or Paul of being doormats. In fact, they were pretty demanding people, both of them, to live with. But they aren't obsessed with self-exaltation. Their life is about serving God and serving people. That is God's calling on all of us. My status is not of any particular importance. My calling to serve God with everything I have have and am. And my calling to serve people is absolutely vital and central for each of us. And tears. Isn't that interesting? Points out his tears. He does it twice, actually. Be on your guard, verse 31. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you each night and day with tears. The qualification for leadership is tears. Because there must be an emotional engagement with people from our hearts. There must be. You know, I, I confess after 20 years or so of gospel ministry, I have to fight cynicism. Because the cumulative um, burden and strain of engaging emotionally with people in all kinds of situations takes its toll. I confess I have, I have found myself um, effectively praying, um, Jesus, you only had to do it for three years, at least publicly. And then I remember that God has been bearing our burdens and weeping for millennia now. Do not trust someone who is emotionally disengaged. And do not be that person. If you never cry, in particular, you can't lead. Always follow the call of God. Always watch your heart, says the Apostle. And then he says, it's difficult to summarize it really, you could put it under lots and lots of headings if you wanted to, but let me just try and summarize it. Be comprehensive as leaders. Comprehensive. Comprehensive for instance, in the sense that the whole of life is lived for Jesus. Um, uh, not a, 
a, a, a simple teacher, a head on a stick. The apostle, verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Here is someone who, who watches himself for greed. Verse 34, you yourselves know these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Here is the man who was prepared to get his hands dirty. In everything I did this, uh, I did. I showed you that by this kind of hard work, you must, we must help the weak, remembering the words, it's more blessed to give them and to receive. Here is a man who was committed to generosity. Here is a man who tried to live his whole life then as a model to these people, not only calling them not to put their trust in silver and gold, but modeling it too, not only calling them to labor for the Lord in all kinds of ways, but being prepared to do it too, not only calling them to give generously to the poor, but doing it too. Here is a man who, who, who had a comprehensive vision for his calling amongst the people of God. But probably he most emphasizes compre- comprehensiveness of his teaching, which is what I want to, um, uh, to look at a little bit more. Teaching anything that would be helpful. Verse 20, you know I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Teaching publicly and privately, he says. I taught you publicly and from house to house. Not someone who was just obsessed with the pulpit opportunities, but someone who got alongside people as well and helped them to understand the implications of the gospel. Um, uh, and teaching absolutely any, anyone. I, you know I've not hesitated to, uh, to preach. Sorry, I have declared, verse 21, to you, to both Jews and Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching uh, also the whole will of God. Verse 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. There is a strong undercurrent, frankly, in every church, I think, that I have ever had anything to do with for simpler, more entertaining sermons. Preachers uh, need to always as well, be working on making their teaching accessible and digestible. But the the undercurrent never, ever goes away. I could tell you about churches who have a tradition of 10-minute sermons, um, uh, where people still chafe at 10 minutes and grumble like mad if it goes to 11. That is just the nature of life. And I think I've begun to understand what's going on. All of us have in our hearts a desire to get more value for less effort. And the hard work of um, listening to sermons, we think, well, yeah, we could shave a bit off and still get the same value. Well, possibly, with a greatly skilled uh, um, uh, uh, teacher, we could. But in the end... As uh, Michael Green used to love to say when he was at St. Aldate's, sermonettes produce Christianettes. If I have a regret, it's frankly in not being more comprehensive in teaching the Word of God. The Apostle says that his clearness of conscience rests upon the fact that he taught them the whole will of God. Now notice it's to everyone. Jews and Gentiles. In Romans, Paul um, 
expands that to um, every other group that he can think of, it seems to be, including barbarians and um, uh, fools. And notice, it cannot mean that what he does in his teaching is he waters it down so that even the simplest fool will, uh, will, will, will find it absolutely simple. He, he expresses in Romans his commitment to those people in the context of a letter which has challenged the greatest, some of the greatest minds over the last 2,000 years to understand it. He is not someone who dumbs down, but he is someone who is passionately committed to all kinds of people. It's interesting that he, uh, he warns them to expect wolves to come in amongst them, verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you day and night with tears. And when we see his wider ministry, we find that actually a very large proportion of the wolves that he dealt with are those who within churches wanted to exalt one group above the others. In Rome for instance, or in Galatia. It was those who wanted to exalt the Jews amongst the others and make the others into second-class citizens. In Corinth, it was those who wanted to exalt the wise people above the others and make the others second-class citizens. It seems that actually one of his big emphasis was to resist the, the hegemony of one group over the others and insist on the equal dignity of all people in the church. So much false teaching in the early church had its origin in a narrowing of the comprehensiveness of the call of the gospel. Paul makes it so clearly plain that central to his calling and his ministry as an apostle is that he calls all people to repentance and faith. And he wants to build churches that comprise all kinds of people who have come to repentance and faith. Churches that are only interested in one subpopulation of their area, actually, the evidence is, will probably grow more rapidly. But ultimately, they will have a fatal weakness. They will have immaturity and even, God forbid, false teaching. And the, the stories are legion. For instance, many churches in Rwanda at the time of the genocide were substantially tribally segregated and homogenous. And interestingly, those churches engaged in the genocide with almost the same degree of enthusiasm as the non-Christians around them. It was a few groups, most prominently the student Christian group in the universities which were tribally integrated who stood against the genocide even at at the loss of their own life. And thank the Lord since then 
have gained an enormous reputation for the gospel and for Jesus through doing so. Or right now, currently in America, the young, younger generation, uh, rising generation in America, look at the homogenous um, uh, churches that, that, that have grown up over the last generation or two um, as uh, middle-class clubs that show very little evidence of, in fact, the power of the gospel in drawing all kinds of people together. And they are turning away from Christianity itself in droves, in part because of their cynicism about exactly that issue. Do not underestimate the importance of having a comprehensive vision to reach all kinds of people for the gospel. If I wanted to warn you about one thing in Magdalen Road, it would be the danger of embracing an easy, homogenous vision for church. Let me ask you a question. Is there any group in East Oxford that you say, we are not interested in them? It's been our privilege over the years to welcome and love uh, asylum seekers. There was a time when we had 20 or 30 Kenyan asylum seekers in the church. They made up about a third of us at that point. It was a joy, and they used to sing us gospel uh, uh, songs at the front. And And this church grew through its commitment to those people. And on, we have welcomed the homeless, we have welcomed drug addicts, young families, teenagers, the elderly, Muslims, Buddhists, middle-class intellectuals, students, all of those significant members of East Oxford. Are there any that you say we're not interested in? And I have to say that, that, comprehensiveness is absolutely my commitment in Trinity Church as I go. If, if, it, if it didn't represent the range of people in the centre of the city, then I would see my, uh, myself to have failed. A lot of people have said to me, oh, you're starting a student church, are you? And my answer to that is, of course, in the centre, students will be an important part of the life of that church. At least I pray so, because they're an important part of the centre of the city. But if it does not represent the range of people in the centre of the city, on equal terms, for instance, there are more homeless people in the centre than there are here, then I would have failed. My my hope and my prayer is that Trinity Church and Magdalen Road Church will stand shoulder to shoulder with that comprehensive vision for ministry. For all kinds of people, all the kinds of people who are here in our two locations. And so find maturity and an environment where people grow up in the Lord. Because all people are hearing the gospel. Well, there's three of Paul's uh, convictions. And we could have picked out more. Always follow the guidance of God and the call of God. In the end, that is your most fundamental calling. 
always watch your heart. Always be comprehensive in your vision, comprehensive in your desire to learn and teach the whole will of God, comprehensive in our vision for bringing in all kinds of people into his church. I could spend a a good deal of time rehearsing the multiple ways in which I have failed in those three, let alone other things that we could have picked out. And you who've borne with me for um, nearly two decades now will have seen a small proportion of them. I can assure you there's an awful lot more of them uh, that I'm aware of and probably even a whole factor, order of magnitude that the Lord is aware of. But I want to end this time, this first of two sessions with the Apostles' final conviction in one sense. Verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Next week we'll look at the inheritance that the word of his grace gives. But notice, um, especially this week, it is the word of his grace that builds you up. It is the word of his grace that gives you the confidence to follow the call of God wherever that may lead you because he is a God of grace and generosity. It is the word of his grace that gives us the confidence to look into our hearts and to deal with those issues in our hearts because we need not fear them. Rather, his grace can heal them and restore them. And it is the word of his grace that must go out to all kinds of people. Because it is grace for all people, not just for me, but for all. And it's the word of his grace that will build us up. I have great confidence as I leave Maudlin Road, and I'm full of joy at what God has done in our 10 years, uh, 17 years um, uh, together. And I know that what he continues to do, he will do through the word of his grace.